0: You are listening to The Hodges Huddle, where we discuss all things happening in the wide world of sports. Here is your KLSU sports team. Welcome into The Hodges Huddle. I am your host, Patricia Caputo. Joining me today is Andre Champagne and Cassidy Johnson. How are you all doing today? We're making it. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Andre, <laughs> you're getting by? Uh,
1: we're getting by, yeah. Okay, getting yeah, by. Yeah, like, like, you know... 4 days till till another LSU game day.
0: You're right. Okay, and guess what? Yeah. By the time this podcast comes out, it will probably be only 1 day. All right, so our listeners true. only have to sleep 1 night until LSU takes on Auburn. But let's talk about last weekend's game as LSU defeated New Mexico 38 to nothing to go 3 and 1 on this season now even though we did have a complete shutout there was some struggles in the first half we only had led by 17 by the time halftime came along what could have been the cause of some of these struggles for lsu
1: yeah i mean lsu did start off really slow we all saw it i think the penalties killed drives and so i'm gonna kind of you know pick on the offensive line it was mostly them that you know who was credited for the penalties so i'm gonna say that maybe their laziness on their First few drives is probably why we started so slow.
2: Yeah, I agree. I also think they kind of came into the game being like, oh, it's just New Mexico, and they're really chill and lax. And I think after the half, they decided to pick it up for sure.
0: Exactly. That's what I think as well happened, Cassidy, that we went to this game, we just come off a big game, an SEC win against Mississippi State, and then you take on a team like New Mexico, and you say, oh, this is going to be an easy win, possibly similar to that Southern game where they were up by almost 40 by the end of the first quarter and that is not what happened and part of that was because of Jaden Daniels. Jaden Daniels has been a huge asset for this team since he was announced starter at the beginning of the season but he did look a little rattled. He seemed that he had trouble reading defenses. He had a difficult time throwing clean passes. I would say that a lot of that had to do with his mindset and his mentality while he did end the game with 279 passing yards and went 24 of 29. At the end, he just seemed to have struggled before Brian Kelly put in Garrett Nussmeyer. What could have been the cause of that?
1: So yeah, I think he kind of did struggle. I think maybe he came into the game also, you know, thinking it was going to be a cakewalk. Um, you know, they were all in those purple uniforms. Probably <laughs> that's probably all they were thinking about. Um, he made decent reads. He just needs to be more accurate throwing it downfield. I mean, he's he's capable. We've seen what he can do. Uh, So hopefully he does it against Auburn. I'm just thinking it's probably mental, mental mistakes.
2: Yeah, I agree. And the O-line is just getting better each game, and they're giving him more time to be in the pocket and be confident. I think he just needs to slow down, read the defense, look at um, who's open, what would be the best kind of play and that it should be
0: all right. Similar to what Andre said, Jaden Daniels has never played an SEC game before this season he's at Arizona State, comes over here and that was a really big first game. I've talked about this multiple times on podcasts and shows where his first ever game as a Tiger was in the Superdome and then you move on to a game against Southern that was highly anticipated, historical and then you have an SEC team in Mississippi State now you get to New Mexico and it seems like okay, I only have to do a few routine plays, hopefully my running backs can handle some of the load that I'll be able to throw few deep passes down the field and we'll be able to wrap this up rather quickly and that did not happen and I believe that that rattled him and got in his head a little bit but with that as Cassidy has mentioned the offensive line did seem to look a lot better this week do we think that they are prepared for SEC play Cassidy
2: I think yeah I mean the SEC is just a different kind of different breed you know what I'm saying so can't be too confident, but I think, you know, they're getting better each game, and hopefully they continue to improve and that the Auburn defense won't have much to do with them. Andre?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love to see the offense line this week. I'm going to kind of talk about, you know, what they did this week that, you know, stood out to me. We were just more aggressive, and we read the defensive, like, blitzing. We read that so well. Uh Brian Kelly mentioned he was like – um, these guys, you know, on the opposing defense this week, they were always moving. And it wasn't like you were assigned one guy. You were, you were looking at, you know, who's who do you have to go after, not who's coming to you. So that's going to change, you know, with Auburn. Uh, other guys helped each other out when not blocking a guy. And that's what we kind of talked about earlier this season. We were like, where's the IQ of these guys, you know, of blocking and stuff. And we're starting to see it, and I'm super proud of it.
0: That's what I'd like to see too. We know that they're freshmen, they're young. A lot of, none of them, for the most part, have played together. At, at this institution. Some of them have played in college football. A guy like Miles Frazier was at FIU until he transferred here this offseason. I did like what I saw from him, just better at guarding. Even a game against Southern, he had just struggled to guard that right side, and it caused Jaden Daniels to be under pressure, having to scramble, having to run out of the pocket. That seems to be cleaned up a little bit more. You made that change, putting Emory Jr. Jones Jr. in. Although he is younger, they do seem to be cleaning up and getting more in rhythm and used to what their roles are in this offensive line and let's discuss about this backfield now as we know John Emery Jr this was his second game back from his suspension Noah Kane did lead the running backs this week 11 carries for 94 yards whereas John Emery Jr had 94 yards on nine carries are we expecting to see more for him and or does coach Kelly continue to say hey I'm going to put in all four backs Josh Williams Noah Kane and now John Emery Jr since Armani Goodwin is most likely out for a few weeks.
1: Yeah, I think he, he's going to earn his way to that starting role, but we're never going to see you know just a running back one. We're going to continue to see what be, we've been seeing this past month uh, because all four backs have a role in our offense, and they all play that role really well. So we're not going to just change it up just like that. We're going to stick to our game plan.
2: Yeah, I agree. I can see Coach um, implementing all four backs because they're all really – just great at what they do. They, they're they different players and every different player is going to have a different kind of intensity and a different style of how they play. They have no trouble finding the end zone. So I like the thought of there being a variety in, of the backs and not just one running back.
0: I like that as well. The thing about John Emery Jr. is that he can block. He's another guy that can help protect Jaden Daniels, and that's extremely helpful. Nine times out of ten, a quarterback is going to want a guy who can block and who can protect them, then a guy who can just go out there and run the ball, right? So Josh Williams, Noah Kane, great assets for that. They can run the ball, but John Emery Jr. just has that talent, that skill that can help protect Jaden Daniels, especially with an offensive line that is growing, but there's still room to grow, as they may say, and still some problems with this offensive line. So having a guy like that is a great asset. Let's talk about this wide receiver core right now. You had Kayshawn Butte, who was out because he had welcomed the child into the world. Congratulations (laughs) to Kayshawn. But that gave opportunities for guys like Brian Thomas Jr. and Jack Besh to make a difference in this offense. Let's talk about Brian Thomas Jr., who led the receiving core with 76 yards on three receptions along with a touchdown. Does he see more of the field this Saturday after a performance like this?
1: Yeah, I really think he's going to be a key guy in our offense coming up this Saturday because the attention is going to be put on neighbors. It's going to be put on Butte. It's going to be up to you know guys like Brian Thomas Jr., Chris Hilton, um, Jack Besh. It's going to be up to those guys. And then Brian Thomas is just so physical. He's so tall. Mm-hmm. I think he's like six four, six five. He's going to win one on one coverages against Auburn. Sorry. <laughs> Defensive backs. Yeah,
0: I agree. Yes, I would say that as well. He is six four. Andre, 6'4", 201 pounds. And with that booty injury last season, we saw what the capabilities that Brian Thomas Jr. and Jack Bash both had and the problem with this core is not that they're not great players it's the fact that we just have so much depth but that comes in handy when a guy like Boudet isn't able to play in a circumstance such as this so I do expect to see Brian Thomas Jr. have more of a role in this offense at the down the road, along with Jack Besh, who was also back there returning punts, and no muffs, very clean, nothing to Malik Neighbors. Malik Neighbors is just great at what he does right now, playing at that wide receiver, where Jack Bash is fast, he's big, he's physical, and he's able, I thought he did great back there, going out there, returning punts, minimal mistakes, and things of that nature, and almost had a return for a touchdown, yeah. but it got called back due to a penalty. So coach that was... was so nice. upset
2: about that. They said it, he um it was called for blindside blocking, and he was like,
1: and it wasn't even yeah, a blindside. Yeah, that's what he was it saying. He was like,
2: if you know anything about football, like there was nothing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, he was like, he was like, well, in that case, there's going to be no punt touchdowns Yeah, ever. yeah, that's what he was and saying. Was like, Ooh. I'm unsure yeah.
2: of
0: exactly who the player was, but an LSU player, special was, teams player.
1: Uh, I think it was Kobe Fields.
0: Kobe Fields, then twice. I would say that he hit him from more of the side, so it wasn't so yeah. much a blind side because a blind side is typically in the back where you can't see anything at all and you can't defend yourself. But either. correct, yeah. but this was seemed to be an opportunity where the. A New Mexico player could defend himself, but yeah. the refs thought differently. So we move on. It's all right. We still shut them out. We won the game. <laughs> and maybe we'll see Jack Besh there in the back again next week. Let's move on to this LSU defense. The LSU defense held New Mexico's quarterback, Miles Kendrick, to only 47 yards in the shutout win. Who stood out this week for the defense? I
2: think... I mean, overall, the defense was outstanding, but I would have to say Harold Perkins and Jerick Bernard Converse. Um, Harold, you know, he filled in for BJ, and those were really big shoes to fill. And I think he did an outstanding job doing that. You know, there's a lot of shuffling and switching around due to injuries. But I just think overall it was a great showing for the defense. Jerick Bernard-Converse, he moved to safety since Major Burns is out, and Major Burns is going to be out for three to six weeks, Coach says. So I think he did a great job. He racked up three solo tackles, and he just had a big uh, impact on the field.
1: Yeah, to me it was a few guys. uh, Like Cassidy said, Harold Perkins was a guy that, you know, led the team in tackles just for this game. That's the second time he's done that this year. And he just continues to impress us. Uh, then I'm gonna say Greg Brooks Junior. I'm super impressed with Greg because he thrives in the safety position and we had just recently switched him to safety uh, from nickel. So it was it I think he's just like blossoming there and that's just his, you know, regular position where he's feeling comfortable. And I just got flashes of like Jamal Adams like okay. twenty sixteen. <laughs>
0: Okay, with some of these injuries, with Joe Fouché's suspension, which we'll talk about in a little, Jay Ward was injured, Major Burns. Now, there were some guys that had to step up, one of them being Harold Perkins. Even though he is such, just a freshman, he has stepped in this role. As you both said, he now leads and tackled or he led in tackles for this game for the second time. Clearly, guys like B.J. Ojalari Ali Gay, they're always there standing out. And then you also had a guy like Greg Brooks, transferred from Arkansas this offseason, who was able to step up and make plays and switch his position, in a sense, when needed because due to these injuries and possible suspensions. With that, this is what Brian Kelly had to say about Harold Perkins and his role in the defense on Monday during the press conference.
3: Look, here's the thing with, with Harold. He's going to flash because of his skill set. I mean, he is... Twitchy, he is fast. Um, he he has all of those tools that are going to allow him to show. And then um, Matt's doing a great job of of keeping it in, in a in the in the easiest form um, within the defense.
0: Now let's talk about what Brian Kelly had just said, and what it, would you all say that is Harold Perkins' role, and do we? With- Do we like what Brian Kelly is doing, just limiting Harold Perkins in a sense, allowing him to get used to this defense and playing at the college level?
1: Yeah, I think it's genius. You know, he's just a freshman, so he's kind of learning his role into the the defense. And he's just, like Brian Kelly said, he's so athletic that it's just hard to leave him off the field. So you have to utilize him in some way. I really think his side-to-side movement on the field is going to save LSU down the stretch in some games, especially SEC games. He's just very good at blitzing and he's going to get better in coverage. We'll probably use him more with coverage and like run stuffs in the, like, in, I would say next year or just later this year because he's still learning his role.
2: Yeah, I agree. He's very athletic and not only that, but he is a playmaker. He gets things done. Um, in the New Mexico game, like um, Andre was saying, he had four solo tackles and had the assists with three other tackles. So he is a playmaker. Where
0: Brian Kelly in this LSU defense is a, an advantage with Harold Perkins is that there's no rush to get him involved in this defense. He's playing his part. He's doing what he needs to do. But you have so many other dominant guys, especially when guys like Jay Ward and Joe Fouché come back into the lineup, that Harold Perkins can still be a great player but not have all that pressure on him to do well, to make plays. He's just right now playing for, similar to how kids sign up for football when they're young, they're playing for fun. And that is cool to see in a sense that that's kind of what Harold Perkins is doing because he doesn't, as I mentioned, have that pressure on him. He's going out there, he's making tackles and simply just doing his job. Now, as we had mentioned, LSU did get a shutout win 38 to nothing. How good does this look for LSU in terms of playoffs and bowl game contentions after they had already lost one game to Florida State this season?
1: It looks really good. I mean look, we literally out yarded them 600 like 30 something at 88 yards. They got 88 yards all game. Yes. I think it's just this defense is starting to find their consistency like Brian Kelly said, uh, this defense is really legit, in my opinion, and it's just nice to have a competent defensive coordinator for once, <laughs> since Dave Aranda. Uh, so, I mean, they're literally only allowed four more yards than Georgia has all season. Yeah. So that's that's mm-hmm. good company to be in.
2: Yeah, I agree. And, I mean, I think it looks amazing. I know some people might be like, oh, it's New Mexico, not even a Power 5 school, but I think to shut out a team in general, that is very impressive, and the the manner that we did it, I think, is even more impressive.
0: Right, as Andre had mentioned, LSU had six hundred and thirty three total yards. New Mexico eighty eight in rushing terms. LSU had two hundred and nineteen, and then New Mexico had forty one. It's a great for LSU to get a shutout win. Against a team like New Mexico, especially what had happened in the half when they were only up by 17, to be able to go up to 38 points to get that shutout win, it does look good for possible playoff contention, if that's possible, and even bulk attention and things of that nature. With that, Auburn will, LSU will play Auburn and take them on at 6 p.m. next week in Jordan Air Stadium. Who do we need to keep, out, keep an eye out for on this Auburn offense or defense?
1: Oh, we got to look out for Tank Bigsby. That's that's the biggest yeah. guy. He's been he's been in playing in SEC like football for 3 years now. Uh, this is I think his 4th year. Is he a senior or something like that? But he is just so good and he's so big. He's I don't know. I would say he's probably a top 3 running back in the SEC, but We have to stop him. I'm pretty sure if we stop their run game, they're screwed because their quarterback um, situation is a little weird right now. I don't think they're starting T.J. Finley on Saturday.
0: Correct. No, I don't believe that they are, that there is some question that T.J. could be starting, and Brian Kelly in the press conference did say that he's preparing for both of them, but right now he has that shoulder injury. He's not expected to play. Instead, Robbie Ashford will take on the role of starting quarterback for Auburn this week. Let's now talk about this LSU defense. We had mentioned how great of a game they had against New Mexico State, and now they will be adding another guy back into the lineup in Joe Fouché as he has served his four-game suspension because of some of his credits, did not transfer over from Arkansas when he transferred this offseason. So that was a problem. The NCAA decided to fine him for academically for being in academically ineligible. This is what Brian Kelly had to say about Joe Fouché's role and him coming back into this lineup and how ready he seemed to be able to play as a Tiger.
3: Yes, he's been actively involved. Um, I, I think the plan has been excellent. Um, he's been involved in... Any articulation between our offense and defense that hasn't involved game plan, which is quite a bit. Every day we'll have some 11-on-11 11 11 work where there is no, um, hey, we're getting ready for New Mexico or getting ready for Mississippi State. He's involved in that.
0: Now, Greg Brooks will be back into the lineup, Joe Fouché, Jay Ward, they're all expected to be back. What are our thoughts on these three players all playing together for the first time this season?
1: It'll be interesting, in my opinion. You know, I think it's it's just it's weird when you don't have guys playing together at at every single game. It's going to be a thing of them getting used to it. I really hope we don't start off slow because that's, that's a big thing going on the road. So for Greg Brooks to be in the safety position, I like that. And Joe Fouché is going to play the other side. So we're going to move Converse back to Nickel, where he belongs, and he plays that position really well. So we need to let him have that and put Fouché back at safety where he's used to playing.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's just like how can things get any better? I already think this defense is great. You're adding Fouché
1: back. You jinxed. jinxed. (laughs) No, no,
2: I'm not a jinxer. I'm not a jinxer. I have the utmost confidence that the defense is going to go crazy. I was going to say something
0: similar, that as what we have right here is a ton of experience and a lot of talent. And if these guys can – Get the rotation. You have Bernard back where he's comfortable. That seems like a good sign. Not jinxing, Andre. <laughs> no, no. I, I completely
1: agree with y'all. <laughs>
0: where if they're able to get in a good rotation, and as Brian Kelly had mentioned just now in this, the podcast or in the presser, that Joe Fouché seemed very active. He doesn't seem like he spent a lot of time away and he's wanted to play. He's hungry and he's ready to go out there and compete. And that can only improve this Tiger defense. Again, as long as they form a healthy rotation and they all know their roles. Now, this is... LSU's first road game, official road game of the season. The farthest they've gone this year was to New Orleans, which for them could technically be a home game. It's only an hour away. So could a different setting with a newer team still getting into the swing of things possibly affect them getting into the groove of things?
1: I think it definitely could, but we need to start fast. That's that's my thing. We've been starting up really slow. We're gonna have to turn it up a notch this weekend um, because we got to shut those fans up as soon as possible, giving them nothing to cheer for. For our younger guys, it's gonna be a struggle, but this is where you have to stay focused. That's when our leaders are gonna have to come in, play their part, settle them down. Um, but for the for the keys, I think if we really just shut down their the the quarterback. We're gonna be fine because Mm -hmm. our defensive line's not gonna let, you know, two hundred yards up. I really think, you know, like y'all said, I think we're gonna dominate this game.
2: I agree. I think I mean, anytime there's an away game, you always have to worry about like it's gonna be loud, their fans are crazy, it's gonna be a hostile environment. You just gotta lock in, honestly. And I think that we are gonna dominate. I think the quarterback situation for Auburn, that is that's just a bad situation for them. So if I think as long as we take advantage of that, there's nothing we should worry about. Correct.
0: Hopefully. We saw we Arburn yeah. struggled last week against Missouri. They nearly oh, he's lost. He's bad.
1: He's <laughs> bad. I watched I watched. He's bad. He's growing. He can he can run, but he can't he pass. So,
0: okay. So the defense does have to look out for his mobility, right? right. That that's That's something to look out for. And then the running backs. Also, if a guy like Tank Bigsby, experienced running back, been there for a while, can step up, make plays, another guy LSU has to look out for. This could definitely rattle them. You have a fairly new offensive line. Brian Kelly mentioned this in his presser as well, that most of the games have been all purple and gold. And next week, it's not going to be like that. There's going to be a lot of orange and navy blue. And now you have... Jaden Daniels, first ever true SEC road game, experienced, inexperienced offensive line in a sense, and a defense that is just finally getting into its rotation and getting all of its players back. With that, we know how Auburn plays, and again, they have the experience, they seem to be a team that works together, that is ready to fight and to win games, and they're on a three-game winning streak. I I see them possibly affecting what Andre had mentioned, that they could start out slow because of this, but I, I see them wrapping it up and being able to come away with a win on Saturday at Auburn. Now let's move on to Monday night football. The Cowboys took on the Giants on Monday night, and the Cowboys handed the Giants their first loss of the season. Dallas defeated New York 23-16. to The Dallas defense was one of the reasons that this team won this game. Who are some players that stepped up to give New York their first loss of the year?
1: I wouldn't even say just this game. I would say pretty much that's why they've been— I mean, that's why yes. they won against the Bengals. That's why they kept it close with the Buccaneers. Mm-hmm. I mean— these guys, I mean, I would say Donovan Donovan Wilson, the safety, Correct. so good, um, and DeMarcus Lawrence. He had yeah. three sacks. Yep. If he didn't get hurt, he was probably going to put up, like, a record or something. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I said DeMarcus Lawrence because, yeah, he did have three sacks, and he was really setting the tone for the, for the Dallas defense. Um, but, yeah, he did have that little injury, but um, they say he's all good to go, so that's great. And I think Trevon Diggs, I know he gets a lot of slack, but – I think he was playing very aggressively and he got that late game interception that mm-hmm. sealed the deal, so
0: now yes, there was one that Trey Lance almost had that clear interception, I believe it was in the third quarter. Yeah. And he yeah. couldn't come away with it. The he overrated. is a for- yeah, he yeah. is a former wide receiver, so Troy Aikman was in a bit of shock. The announcer, Troy Aikman, was in a little bit of shock as to how Trayvon couldn't get get that, but he did make up for it to close out the win against New York. And as Andre had mentioned, DeMarcus Lawrence did look very good as well and seems to be stepping into that leadership role for the Dallas Cowboys that they have waited so long for. Meanwhile, for New York, let's talk a little bit about Sterling Shepard. We'll give an update on him. He has torn his ACL and is out for the season. He was injured on a non-contact injury while he was running a go route late in the fourth quarter. He immediately grabbed his knee and had to be carted off the field. Guys like Odell Beckham Jr. and other players around the NFL said that this is why they need natural grass, that the turf causes injuries. It's one of the reasons why Cowboys wide receiver Michael Gallup was injured last year, and now you see it in Sterling Shepard. Now with that, it's a horrific situation, and Shepard will be out for the year, but you need guys to step up. And one of those guys could possibly be Kenny Galladay, who the Giants paid millions upon millions of dollars to help them win games. But last night, he had three targets for zero catches and two drops, and this was after last week he had expressed his frustrations with the media with the New York Giants not utilizing him like he thought he should be. He was paid, to be exact, $40 million guaranteed when he had signed his contract. Had a games such as this, knowing his stats, hurt his chances of seeing the field.
1: I mean, it definitely hurt his chances, you know, previously. But with, you know, Sterling out for the season now, he has to step up. Like, he's going to get playtime time now. There's, yeah. there's literally nobody on that Giants team that could, you know— step up i I, i'm not shaming the giants i'm just saying they have no depth at that position so you know even he has to step up and uh even i thought the giants were going to be you know a dark horse you know Mm -hmm. for the wild card not like anything crazy good but you know now just for them to be competitive he has to step up because if they don't have good receivers they're going to be seven and ten team
2: yeah, I agree. And I think it's crazy like you just complained last week how you want your time to shine. You get your time to shine and you you put up a stat line like that. I think that's crazy. In games like that, you got to show up and you got to perform. Can't have an out like that after you just complained.
0: And to me, that's the difference between good and great. That's yeah. one of the reasons why I've always liked Harold Owens and Deion Sanders because they talked a lot and a lot of players didn't like them and they no. thought that they were cocky, you may say, but then they went out on the field and showed you exactly why. Teller Owens is saying get your popcorn ready and Deion Sanders is saying look good, feel good, pay good, they play good, whatever. And that's why when you have a guy like Kenny Galladay if you're going to go out there and say that to the media well make sure you catch all three targets. You're only being targeted three times in a game, make it count. And now as Andre had said you do have to step up because the Giants don't lack depth in that wide receiver core and you can't rely on Saquon Barkley, you can't Daniel Jones can't do it all himself, so you're going to need a guy like Kenny Galladay, who I had mentioned, you're paying $40 million of guaranteed money to step up and help this Giants offense make plays. Let's talk about the other side of the ball in CeeDee Lamb. Now, CeeDee Lamb did have two drop passes in the first half. He looked a little shaky, but he made up for it on that one-handed touchdown grab to possibly ce- to seal the game, to conclude that. The Cowboys had most likely won this game. Does he look like he's fitting into this Amari Cooper-type role a little better this week?
1: I don't even think it's him filling the role. I think it's just the Cowboys receivers are starting to, you know, support their quarterback a little more, and now he's got a little less attention on him. Like with Noah Brown going off, mm-hmm. you know, that that gives Rush more options, and Seedy's getting open. So, you know, Seedy's been going off.
2: Correct. Yeah, I agree. He, he is – wide receiver one now so you do have to step up those passes that he he was dropping like they they hit your hands my Mm -hmm. dad was a football coach (laughs) and he used to always be like if you touch it you catch it and so some of those passes some of those drops were a little "Mm," but I think he's getting used to it I think that touchdown catch was stellar (laughs) I was screaming all in my house so I think he's getting used to that role it's true. It was just some routine mistakes that yeah. you usually
0: don't see in a guy like C.D. Lamb, but some of that could have to do with now he is that wide receiver one. When Michael Gallup comes into that mix, I could see that improving a little bit more as there will be the defense will have to focus more on another wide receiver other than just C.D. Now let's talk about backup quarterback Cooper Rush. He helped lead the Cowboys to victory. With this, he remains undefeated as a starting quarterback. Is there any chance of what head coach Joe, or owner Jerry Jones rather is saying about rush possibly starting over Dak Prescott does any of that ring true when Prescott comes back
1: I don't take anything that Jerry Jones <laughs> says as true information so I don't think there's any competition between Dak and him I just think that Cooper Rush you know just he vouched for his you know sign him again pretty much like he's that guy where if Dak does go down again which is probably going to happen because he's oh my gosh. injury bound um, you know he's that guy that can actually win you some games with that time period, and it's it's he solidified himself mm-hmm. as a backup quarterback in the NFL.
2: Correct. I agree. I, I don't see Cooper Rush starting over a healthy Dak Prescott. I don't. I love Dak Prescott, but he does play a little funky sometimes. So I have I've liked what I've seen out of Cooper Rush more than what I've seen out of Dak Prescott. But Dak Prescott's like he's a franchise player. I don't see him sitting if he's healthy.
0: Exactly what you all said. They signed Dak Presta to win $160 million- or a hundred four year, $160 million guaranteed with a hundred and sixty million or a hundred and sixty million dollar deal with a hundred and twenty six million dollars in 2021. So they'd signed him to that contract, four year deal. You're not going to give that up. And he is expected to be back against the Rams. So that will be week five for the Dallas Cowboys. And Cooper Rush will look to see if he can stay undefeated against the Washington Commanders. Now let's move on to the rest of the Sunday slot. And we're going to try something a little different here today. And we're going to try some rapid fire questions. All right. So, first. First off, we're going to discuss the Dolphin bills game. I'm going to throw y'all some questions. We're just going to answer them real quick, try to give some short little phrases, short sentences to see if we can get through some of these stellar games this week. As always, there is on Sunday, but especially this week. First off, starting with the Dolphins and the Bills game. The Dolphins came away with a win against the 3-0 Bills. Both teams were undefeated. Dolphins won 21-19. I'm going to start the two-minute timer for this one, and then we'll go a little shorter for the other ones but we'll start off as this is our trial run is the conversation finally over whether or not Tua Tagovailoa is the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins.
1: Yeah, yes, it, it's over. It's over. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's been he's been him in my opinion, he just needed the help. He needed the coaching he got it now.
2: I agree. He is better than Bridgewater
0: and Scott Thompson. I saw it on NFL memes. I know this seems funny because it's a meme account. But when they flip-flopped and they had him th- look like he was throwing right-handed, all of his passes just seemed to be, like, perfect. Mm. And possibly it's just a reason that we see so many right-handed quarterbacks that we think that Tua doesn't have the capabilities of throwing as a left hand quarterback. But he solidified himself. The Dolphins moved to 3 and O. Oh. Does it ring true, though, that all Tua needed was a little bit of help in that wide
2: receiver core?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. he got, he got Jalen Waddle. He got Tyreek Hill. Mike Gesicki. The, they're loaded I mean that, I, I don't know what else to you say you sound
2: like a Dolphins fan right now no uh, I'm just saying <laughs> they, You're,
1: you are do the
0: penguin dance Andre <laughs> they're
1: loaded oh, the, the, the Jaden model penguin Waddle. dance
0: yeah. <laughs> alright I I agree with what Andre said you have Jaden Wild Jalen Waddle you have Tyree Kill this was a year where you had to make sure that if you want to solidify your spot as starting quarterback you have all the weapons make sure you utilize them Josh Allen on the other side threw for 400 yards compared to Tua's 115. The Bills had 31 first downs compared to the Dolphins' 15, but the Bills had 52 yards worth of penalties. How is a game like this show that penalties can lose you games?
1: Yeah, there was no way that the Dolphins should have won last week, but they did. And so, you know, that just shows you they like tripled their yardage too. So yeah. it was just, it was ridiculous. It's the small things.
0: Exactly, right? Of course, penalties are key. We have 25 seconds left. Now, what happened to the Bills in the final seconds? They ran out of time. They couldn't be able to snap the ball, and they lost the game to possibly where they could have won it with a field goal. Did they just not know there was enough time?
1: They forgot how to spike the ball.
2: Very messy.
0: <laughs> they seemed very slow. It was yeah. very difficult. It was like, come on, y'all, y'all only got the like four or Just, you know, just throwing slamming fist everything. Into the table. <laughs> exactly. No timeouts.
2: Exactly. I would be they mad too, though. That, that would have made me so mad. All
0: right, perfect. We did that in two minutes, y'all. But that was long questions. Okay, so now we're gonna try to narrow it down. I'm gonna let's do a minute thirty for the Packers. Let's do actually a minute thirty for the Broncos 49ers game. That was that Sunday night game. We'll finish talking about the goats in just a second. That highly anticipated game. Let's do the Broncos versus 49ers. Now, the Broncos did defeat the 49ers 11-10. to 10. Jimmy Garoppolo's first official start this season as Trey Lance was injured. Broncos 2-1 on the season. The 49ers fall to 1-2. and two. Let's get started. Was this the game that Jimmy Garoppolo had to prove that he can lead a team to a victory?
1: I mean, yes, but he really didn't even prove it, so yeah. it's still a question.
2: It was definitely supposed to be a statement game, but there was not a statement made. Correct. I agree with you both. Jimmy
0: Garoppolo, 211 yards, went 18 of 29. Need to be a statement game, as Cassidy mentioned, and he was not able to get the job done. Left tackle, Trent Williams is out for the month, at least a month,
2: with a high ankle sprain. What does this mean for this 49ers offense?
1: They're in for a lot of trouble.
2: Yeah, they should be worried. They lost their starting quarterback, and now something like this. They need to whip something up and hope it sticks. Left tackle, personally, is one of the most difficult positions you have to play in football.
0: You have to guard the blind side of the quarterback, and now that they lose their guy, such an experienced guy for this team, and now he's expected to be out for a month. More difficulties leading for the 49ers. What is the cause of Russell Wilson in this slump, as he had
2: 184 yards last—
1: It's not a a slump. He's just mid.
2: I was going to say—I love him. I was going to say the same, but I think he's just washed. Wash, All right. I, I like to so. say that he's just kind of getting used to the offense.
0: He does have the weapons. There's not much of an excuse, but maybe I think you know, the G- offensive play calling
1: has been horrible too. I'll give him yeah.
0: that. Yeah. All right. Besides Wilson, who would you like to see step up for this offense? Courtland
1: Sutton. Where have you been?
2: Definitely Jerry Judy.
0: Jerry, I, I agree with Andre. Courtland Sutton on my fantasy. Come on. Where have you been, man? If I told you that the final score of this game was 11 to 10 with no context do you
2: would you say I was talking about a football game? I would think maybe a really, really good baseball game.
1: (laughs) I would think you were thinking of—I mean, talking about Yankees baseball.
0: I I would say that too. Exactly. All right. And guess what? The Yankees only won three to two against or they lost three to two to the Blue Jays last night. So, but okay. Now let's go to the the Bucks Forty Nine ers. Not as many questions. We're going to narrow it down to a minute. We're doing pretty well so far. We're we have only a few seconds left to spare. But for the first time, this is pretty good. The Packers Bucks game. This was supposed to be the battle of the goats. Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, possibly the last time ever that they compete against each other and it was 14 to 12. Talk about an even better baseball score. All right so let's get started. All right how many more games can Aaron Rodgers play without a solid wide receiver core?
1: Rodgers is going to be completely fine. People are overreacting to the wide receiver thing. I think he's still playoff bound one to three seed in NFC.
2: Absolutely not. I give him one game. Oh okay. I don't like Aaron
0: Rodgers. Okay now but see Alan Lazar you do have some guys like Christian Watson coming back. You're trying to get into the groove of things. Randall Cobb. Randall Cobb, exactly. He was ill this season. I could see him making up for it. Now, was this game overhyped? Again, 14-12. to 12. Absolutely. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Game definitely was overhyped. Battle of the Goats, it was more They're than what of, we had expected. I
1: mean, Brady's washed.
0: Did uh, Both teams play oh, bad. I don't agree with that. Now, the Bucks did bring up Cole Beasley after they dealt with injuries from like guys like Julio Jones, and the list goes on and on. Mike Evans, who was dealing with that one-game suspension. Does, did we expect to see... More from Cole Beasley?
1: Not at all, because he literally just got picked up like two weeks ago. So I mean, he's got no game experience from like the last few months.
2: I expected more just because I know how good he can mm-hmm. be. So it was kind of disappointing. I expected
0: a little bit more, but it is what it is. As Andre said, he just yeah. got called up. Five seconds left, but we'll extend it for this question. Do Brady and Rodgers even like each other?
1: Yeah, they definitely do. I think there's. <laughs> I mean, they don't show it on the field. Obviously, they're both crybabies on the field. But outside, there's definitely respect there. I don't know if you watched the match, you know, with the golf thing. They were always, I mean, they were joking with each other all the time.
2: I would say they're frenemies, but they do respect each other. I agree
0: with the frenemies part. They, they respect yeah. each other, but for the most part, Tom Brady has almost always been Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers, like, yeah, for the team, it comes away with the win. They had mentioned this on Good Morning Football, and I couldn't agree more. For the team, they got the win. But for Aaron Rodgers, that didn't look like a win in his win column if that, he's playing alone.
1: It's, it's about the dope.
0: It is, yeah. but at the end of well, the it's day, it like, is
2: about the win. But I do see what you're saying. Exactly.
0: If you're Aaron Rodgers, knowing Aaron Rodgers, the type of competitor he is, it might not I mean, just yeah, be about the dub still. for him. Right? Well, I, I like that. Okay, that was cool. That Some was fine. rapid fire questions. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get into the swing of that even more next week. But let's talk about our last topic of the day with women's tennis. Last week the women's tennis had the Wahoo invitational. The Tigers went seven of twenty six. They had five wins in the singles, two in doubles. What does new new head coach Taylor Fogelman say to his team in the locker room after tough matches such as these?
1: Just tell your team that it's still early. It's it's really early. And and that they can shake back from this. You know, you're gonna have to go harder in practice. You gotta push each other. That's that's what I said.
2: Yeah, I agree. They have so many more matches after this. You just got to improve on the things that you saw that you probably didn't do that well on. And just pick it up a notch after that. Fogelman's a new coach. He
0: does have some time to improve. But this team, they're just, they have to find their rhythm, right? And exactly what you said, you have to move on. You have to take it. Okay, we lost. And now... I know Cassie likes to say it: short-term memory, right? You got to yeah. move on and be ready for the next match. The highlight of the invitational was Comair and Sophia Carrington as they were the only doubled wind in a 6-2 victory. Carrington is a senior. What asset can she bring to this team, especially under a new head coach?
2: She can definitely step up and be the leader that every team needs. You always need someone who's just going to push you in a – in the best way possible. So I think she can definitely step up and be a leader for
1: sure. Yeah, I completely agree with Cassidy. Just bring the leadership. She has so much experience. You have to bring that to the table like all the time. You know, bring that. I don't care if you're not even the greatest on the team. Bring the experience. Bring the leadership. You're old enough to, you know, tell your people, you, we've been through this. That's how it goes.
0: Yep, and now she's been through two head, two coaches now. So they have a new head coach implemented. She is a leader on this team. And it showed it in her doubles win in Wahua, but also she has the experience in sense that she's been playing tennis since she was a child since about started competitive about nine years old and she's also a third generation tennis player. With these tournaments, players are also traveling to participate in personal matches. so they have the LSU matches and then other ones that they compete on their own. What kind of pressure could this have on a, a student athlete?
1: I think it's 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 a big deal, especially when your collegiate team is struggling. You want to go out there, prove your name. So I think for the biggest thing, it's kind of like, how do you balance that?
2: Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah, it is. It's difficult because not only like athletes similar to football team, they have their football games and they have class. But now they're going out there and they're traveling on their own away from their team to try to make a name for themselves to try to improve on their game as well and hopefully win a few tournaments. The tennis team will compete in their next match on October 1st in the ITA All-American Championship in Cary, North Carolina. But before that, we had the honor to interview Syphia Carrington on the LSU tennis squad. As I had mentioned, she is a third generation tennis player. Her grandfather, Art Carrington, got to play with some of the greats, including Arthur Ashe. and Her father, Lex Carrington, taught Syphia and all of her siblings, all that they know about tennis, and now she's continued this journey. How are you today, Sophia? Good. How are you, Trish? I'm so good. I'm very excited to do this interview. We have lots to cover. For those of you who don't know Sophia, she is a senior on the LSU tennis team. In 2021, she made the all- Louisiana second team and all SEC second team after earning 10 single wins and most notably she's a third generation tennis player. With that being said can you give us a little bit of background of how you got into playing tennis?
4: Hey yeah I mean I think it said it right there third generation. Um, Tennis has always been something that's been in my family. It actually started with my great-grandmother started playing back in the day and then it transferred over to my grandfather and my dad and now myself and my little sister. Um, but I think it really started with my grandfather getting into tennis. And with that, your grandfather, as you had mentioned,
0: Arthur, or also known as Art Carrington, competed in the American Tennis Association, which was at the time the United States Tennis Association for African Americans, and your grandfather played in that during segregation.
4: Yeah, um, that association was called the ATA. It's known as the African American Tennis Association. So um, at the time when he played, obviously our country lived in a world of segregation where blacks didn't have equal opportunities as white Americans. Um, so for my grandfather, he had to compete in totally separate Negro leagues as opposed to white tennis players who could play nationally and with different sections. So he didn't have that opportunity. Um, in fact, he had to be actually invited by so the ATA, the African American Tennis Association, They had opportunities sometimes to handpick players to represent their association to go and compete in nationals. So that was the only way you could play nationals as a black tennis player. And so he actually had the opportunity to do that. And that was his only way to really get out there at that time. And backtracking a little bit about your grandfather, he was the first student to receive an
0: athletic scholarship at Hampton College in 1865, a school that Booker T. Washington had went to in 1868. And now today it is Hampton University University. Do you know the reasoning behind your grandfather's decision to attend Hampton and how did it set him up for the prolific tennis career he had?
4: Yeah, so my pop-up was from uh, right outside of New York City, a town called Elizabeth, New Jersey. And at the time, he was coached under a famous man named Sidney Newellan, who was also the tennis coach for Althea Gibson. Althea Gibson is one of the most notable African-American tennis p- women, female tennis players in the world. Um, so for my grandfather at the time, You know, he competed in the ATA and different nationals, and he got to the finals of the ATA nationals and was actually the first um, African-American man to play an ATA national that was televised at the time, so that gave him a lot of, you know, notability, and he was able to receive a scholarship to Hampton, which was an HBCU, and so for him, he said, you know, coming from a community where he only was around other black tennis players, it was just really, inspiring for him to be able to go to a university where it represented black excellence, and that's why he chose Hampton University. And I think it was funny him saying, you know, always talking about how he was the first black man getting a full scholarship, let alone a full tennis scholarship back in the day, was unheard of. Everybody played baseball, football, or basketball. So for him, that was like really inspiring. And he was always saying he was so honored to be able to have that opportunity.
0: And speaking of great tennis players, your grandfather worked with Arthur Ashe at a few expedition games, if I'm not mistaken. And Arthur Ashe was the first black man to win a U.S. Open tennis championship. How do the two of them help each other improve with their skills and just get better with each and every practice?
4: Um, yeah, so my grandfather uh, playing at Hampton um, his freshman year in 1966, He Hampton was the first black, the first HBCU to be invited to play in an NCAA national and at the time, um, freshmen in Division One tennis weren't allowed to play in the number one spot in NCAA, and he was a freshman, and he got that opportunity because he had played number one at Hampton all year since their division allowed it, and he ended up getting to the finals and losing to the number one player in the country who played for the University of Florida at the time, and from there, that kind of brought him a lot of attention where he ended up, you know, meeting Ash and working with New Ellen and Althea, you know, the black tennis community was small, and so he was able to, you know, train under Ash and learn a lot from him and play doubles with him, and he felt like that really um, gave him a lot of opportunities he wouldn't have otherwise, but I definitely think there was still a lot of obstacles, just because Ash was able to break through in a sense. Um, For my grandfather, he felt like there was a lot of hurdles that stopped him in a way, Um, but yeah, it was cool. He said, you always said it was an awesome opportunity. He was, you know, the first, at 19, he got to play in the U.S. Open because he did so well at that national, so he gives a lot to it to go into an HBCU It set him up.
0: And as his career went on, he got to participate in the first televised ATA Men's Single Championship in 1972. Now, he was defeated by Horace Reed, who won the title that following year in 1973. But did your grandfather ever talk to you about the emotions that he went through in each of those matches?
4: Yeah, I feel like my grandfather, when it comes to him talking about his own personal emotions, it's like hit or miss, if Mm -hmm. he really like, He likes to talk about what he feels like his experiences did for other people and what it represents and so for him he just talked about being like super like nervous because he did not expect to like get to that point but he also f- always talks about how it was just like a benchmark like in his life process to set him up to be like able to do other things always feel like some the next thing is possible and as you was mentioned your grandfather had to ask for permission to
0: play in the UTSA because of segregation. Can you talk about the barriers barriers that he had to overcome as a black tennis player during segregation?
4: Yeah, so um, at the time, um, the ATA got to pick a select few of African Americans to compete in nationals. And I remember hearing stories from my grandfather growing up about how when they would go to compete in nationals in the South, you know, segregation was really upheld there and the rules. And at times they would go to a tournament hotel, and they wouldn't be able to stay in the tournament hotel because they were too dark-skinned. So they would have to send um, one of his friends who was more lighter-skinned to get the room, and then they'd have to climb in through the windows to get into the hotel. And he used to always talk about, too, how when he was at tournaments, like, if he had to go to the bathroom, he had to use, like, the employee's quarters. So he would have to run sometimes, like, a mile just to go to the bathroom in the middle of a match because he couldn't use the locker room like all the other players. So I think, you know, for him, the barriers that he had to go through when you really think about it is really, ex- like, extensive and crazy to think about compared to the opportunities that we have now. But, I mean, he, you know, he's, it was part of the process for him.
0: And your grandfather is making it known that he wants black history in tennis to be remembered. With that, he wrote Black Tennis, which is a book filled with archives of what was called at the time the Negro Newspapers, which discusses the a t the ATA matches, and it has names of certain tennis players and just talks a lot about that error. Have you read the book or looked at the book? And if so, what has it taught you?
4: Yeah, no, I think the looking at that book, what's crazy to me is, like, although my grandfather is so involved, you know, me still being a child, I feel like we take for granted, like, what's right in front of us until we get older. And so for me, you know, people I looked up to a lot were, like, Serena and Venus. And growing up, they were really the only African-American women players I saw on tour so my grandfather's book I feel like is a really cool thing to see because it shows you that there is like black history in tennis it's not just Serena it's not just Venus it's not just Arthur Ashe like there's a whole lineage and like historical dynasty in a way of black American tennis players that played this game that is just so well known as just a white country club sport but we do have a history in it and like there is a lineage in it that I feel like more tennis players should know about then in 1980 he established the Carrington
0: Tennis Academy at Hampshire College in Massachusetts and so far it's helped over 2,000 young tennis players improve their skills and improve their games. The camp is where your father Lex Harrington and your mother met. You've been playing tennis since you were a young child and that's also what your father had mentioned to UTSA.com and said that you were farm raised in tennis. Can you talk about your upbringing in tennis and just how important of an aspect it was in your childhood?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um that's backtrack. I feel like even though my grandfather didn't go as far as he wanted to in pro tennis, um, you know, he went through a lot of barriers. I know Arthur Ashe, they did a article with the Washington Post where Arthur Ashe said, you know, Art Carrington is ready to break through on the pro tour, but he's too unconventional for the world of tennis. And I think that was hard to hear because coming from another black athlete to call another black athlete unconventional, but I think my grandfather's really strong that he didn't let that situation affect him. And he went on to like create, do something else outside of playing professional sports. So yeah, like having my parents have met at a tennis academy is like kind of funny because I feel like, <laughs> you know, you hear the story, oh, your, your dad played the same sport as you and your grandfather, but like my parents actually met through tennis. So for my family, it's like it's a lifestyle, tennis. And to backtrack a little bit so our audience is aware, what did they mean by unconventional? Um, I think from my perspective, what he meant by unconventional is he, I mean, he also quoted, to quote him, he said he's from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, my grandfather grew up in a, I guess you could call it ghetto area in the inner city. And so for him, he liked to make it known that he represented black tennis. He represented an HBCU that was really strong towards him, like, he did not want to, you know, just conform and not talk about it and not talk about segregation and not talk about the riots and things that were going on from where he was from. And at the time, I think they felt like that was like a little too aggressive to bring up. They just wanted to keep it strictly to tennis. And even if you didn't look like the other tennis players, just act all act like you came from the same background as all of them.
0: Right, right. And Speaking on your history with tennis so far, just you were homeschooled as a young child and tennis was made a priority for you and you traveled a lot throughout your tennis career, the first time being at the age of 14 for a tournament in Jamaica where you were alone. Can you explain the feelings when you found out that you had to travel alone and just what happened during that tournament?
4: Yeah, I think it's funny because in my sport it's such an individualized sport that it's like, I feel like from a young age you're prepared in a way. But, I mean, it was still definitely nerve-wracking. I just remember traveling. I mean, obviously that tournament was the first, but there was a lot of tournaments I went to alone. And I just remember being kind of more, not in a sense of, like, nervous, but, like, lonely in a way just because my, like, all these other girls have their coaches or their family members there, and you're kind of there by yourself having to do everything, like, for yourself. And so that's definitely, like, especially as a young girl being in a foreign place, like, that's definitely nerve-wracking. And then at 15, your family
0: moved to Florida with your dad who had to leave behind your mom and take you and your younger siblings down to Florida as your mom continued to work in Massachusetts. What sacrifices did you and your family have to make while living in Florida?
4: Yeah, um it's funny you say say that sacrifices. I feel like looking back at it, it definitely was a sacrifice, but at the time I was like, oh, this is what we're doing, mm-hmm. like i have say. But um yeah, so my mom had to stay in Massachusetts and for the first year, we lived in, like, this small little villa, like, probably 800 feet from the tennis courts. Like, you could see the tennis courts from our back door, but it was a small villa, one bathroom. My brother, my sister, and I, we slept in this, like, small little room where we had a big blow-up mattress in the middle of the two twin beds. So we used <laughs> to have to walk across the beds to get to the bathroom because there wasn't enough space, but it was a fun experience but it was definitely like difficult just our family is so close so like moving across the country and like not having our mom there is like difficult cuz when our dad wasn't coaching us he was coaching and working mm-hmm. so we had to do a lot of stuff like on our own but i think it definitely built character yes, <laughs> in myself for and sure. all my
0: siblings <laughs> and speaking of building character then at 17 you moved to florida at 15 then at 17 you have to travel to trinidad alone where you can only take out from pizza hut because it was a dangerous area and you were perhaps scared to leave your hotel room what how did that experience possibly affect your mental health?
4: Yeah I think at that time I was struggling a little bit just with mental health already like before going to that tournament and I was kind of in a low spot I was struggling with injuries and I really just wasn't motivated to like play to be honest um, I was kind of at a breaking point but I still got sent to the tournament <laughs> and I feel like being in that place like I feel like other athletes can relate to. Sometimes you hit that low where you're in a place where you're all alone and you know that the only thing that you can do to get yourself out of that low is, you know, really do, like, some self-searching and think about why you do this. And even though I was in a situation where I was alone and it wasn't necessarily comfortable, I feel like that uncomfortableness really made me realize that I do love playing tennis. Like, I, as much as this was, like, put on me, it's a part of my life and this is what I want to do. And so I think that really – that situation, that particular situation, helped me really dig deep and realize like what I am as a person and why I do this. And now you are working towards a high level, trying to become an
0: elite tennis player, and now you are struggling with your mental health. What steps did you take to try to, to, try to fix that mental health and put yourself first?
4: Um, I think for everybody, like... There, I think mental health is a really broad sh- spectrum and I feel like everybody's journey is like different with it and how they overcome it for me you know therapy was a big thing that helped me talking to a sports psychiatrist to be able to understand where why I was struggling and where it was coming from um but also like finding a love more I guess in easier terms aside from that is more of finding a love for the game again and like figuring out why I play it and like why I do it because I feel like sometimes that gets lost as athletes when we're nervous and we're stressful we're stressed and we have all these um expectations put on us it's really easy to lose sight of like why you do this why you compete and so for me like that was the biggest thing to kick start my mental health starting to get better but I feel like mental health is something that if you've struggled with it you know you struggle with it every day it doesn't just go away and I think it's awesome that now we're starting to make it more common and to talk about mental health and explain that it is there and not just sweep it under the rug. And then we
0: also mentioned growing through diversity, which perhaps adversity rather, which may have been something you've had to do at your years at LSU, as there have been a few scandals within this LSU tennis program. And one of that being that the Reveille did come out with an article about a year ago about the Reveille is a student-run newspaper on the LSU campus, and it was about now former tennis head coach Julia Sells and, quote, her toxic culture within the program. The Reveille said that Sells gained national spotlight for allegedly ignoring reports that one of her players was a victim of rape, and the article went on to explain that Sells allegedly ignored her acts of domestic violence from a player's boyfriend and even instances where Sells tried to pin players against each other. With that being said, talking... Personally, in your experiences, did Coach Julia Sells make you feel safe?
4: I mean, off the rip, I would say I always felt safe under the cells and, like, comfortable. I feel like you always have uncomfortable situations in sports with coaches. At times, you're not going to agree with them. For me, the extensiveness of, like, what was talked about in the article, I never experienced any of that. Um, A lot of this happened before I was there, so I can't speak to other players' experiences, and I can't. You know, I just, I can't relate in a sense because I wasn't there. That's their story to tell. Um, But for me, being under the cells, I always felt comfortable and I always felt supported. I mean, they were a big reason that I came to LSU to start with. And so to hear that other people had different experiences is, you know, disheartening and hard to hear because that's really sad if that were, if that's true. But um, for me, I always felt like I was comfortable and protected.
0: And speaking of your injuries, you have mentioned before when we talked in the past that you've had an injury-prone career. That was another mention in the article of Carrie Frankenberg, a former LSU tennis player who told the Revley that cells accused her of faking her injury at the time. Can you talk a little bit about your injuries, injuries within this LSU program, and did you ever feel pressured to return to the courts?
4: Yeah, um, for me, I definitely struggled with injury. Um, my freshman, year, throughout my career being at school, my freshman year, I struggled with a back injury in season. Luckily, because of COVID, it got cut short. Um, but my injury also made me mature in a sense because I think part of it was on me. I think as athletes, like we really push ourselves to the limit, and nobody wants to say, "Oh, I, oh coach, I can't go out there. I can't do my part." You know, like that's a difficult conversation to have. I think I had to do a lot of maturing to realize that if something does bother me. I have the right, and I need to speak up about it for myself. And when I did do that, I felt like I was heard. Um, But I definitely think that's a tough position to be in, and sometimes you don't feel comfortable to speak up about it no matter what situation you're in because there are a lot of expectations put on you as a student-athlete, and that's hard to say, oh, coach, I can't do my job today. And with that, you had mentioned that your dad was your coach growing up, so
0: did you develop possibly tougher skin than maybe some of the other athletes that you've been around in general and that's why you look at coaches and how they act or how they respond to you differently?
4: I feel like yeah that definitely could have a part to play in a sense. I feel like everybody's experience experiences and past experiences contribute to how they're going to react to situations. Um, For me I think my dad was definitely very hard on me growing up. Um, I wouldn't say it was I would regret any of it or like take any of it back because I think it made me the person I am today but he definitely like instilled a culture in me where it was like you know you can't control what other people do like you can only control how it affects you and so that's what I was always growing up hearing you know from my parents like if your if your dad gets upset on quarter you feel like you did something wrong like that's he's saying that stuff to you but you have the control of if you take it and you know that's hard that's like a hard mindset to have and not everybody is like raised that way or has that mindset and I don't think that mindset is necessarily right to have you know it shouldn't sometimes be that mindset of just take it in let it brush off but I definitely would say yeah like for me compared to like maybe other players because I was raised like that I have a different look on things. And with that being said, we had mentioned Julia Sells in the article came out
0: about her. And her husband, Michael Sells, was almost non-existent in that article. And at the time, he was the co-head coach. Do you believe that the gender differences is one of the reasons that she could have been a main target in that article?
4: Um, I feel like with our team, at least my experience being there, a lot of like the personal stuff and, you know, Julia handled a lot of that stuff because they were co head coaches. Everybody has a part to play, you know, even now, like having, you know, a head coach and assistant, they each have their own part. So I don't know if it was necessarily like a gender thing, I would say. I think it just may have been like with the situations they were in, it just so happened that she was the one that was put in that situation and he wasn't. Um, For me, I always felt protected by both of them. I worked, I would think, I worked more closely with Mike on court, actually. Um, And he worked alongside my dad for years before I came to LSU and i had never met julia until i came on a visit to lsu but i always felt comfortable around her and i felt i looked at her as like another mother figure when i was here so if something were to happen to you off the court
0: during coach julia's time here at lsu you would have felt safe and comfortable to tell her
4: absolutely i feel like julia i would always feel comfortable to tell julia if something happened i feel like she was i had situations happen being here that were off court stuff that i she did help me through And I can say other girls on my team went through the same thing that she she said they said they she stood by them at the times we were here. I'll definitely say like being a female coach. I think female females just in general in our society are perceived as being you know softer and more more gentle. And when you're not like that, you know you're mean or you're you know I don't know what the I don't want to say the politically incorrect (laughs) word, but you know. Um, But so Julie, I wouldn't say like oh. I want to describe her as oh my gosh she 's so warm, and you know like she 's such a nice and sweet coach like no she 's tough like she 's going to be hard on you like she's going to push you, but you know if she was a male coach, if she was coach o that that mm-hmm. would be normal, you know, so I feel like but off court stuff, I always felt comfortable to go to her I, her being a female, I felt like she was understanding when I was going through like difficulties that female athletes go through,
0: and Coach Julia and Michael Sells did decide to leave the program this off season what did you hear about that and what did they say when they announced that they were leaving
4: um yeah so we didn't find out until you know the the end of the season that they were leaving but the conversations that I had with them and the conversations they had with the team was you know it was just time for them to move on to the next step in life for their family you know it's you know it's sad but all the stuff that they went through here they just felt like there was no much no more growth for them um career-wise to stay at LSU and it was the best move for their family to get a fresh start and start over and so I'm really happy for them and I know you know Mike is coaching going on to coach pro girls now and that's something he loves to do so as hard as it was to like see them go I know it was the right thing for them to do for them. Then LSU did
0: hire head coach now Taylor Fulgerman who helped lead the University of Texas to national championships each of the past two seasons. Just How is it? Do we feel comfortable with him? And what changes has he already made to the culture here at LSU?
4: Yeah, you know, Taylor just got here. Um, He actually also hired assistant coach Chris Simpsons, who um, he played tennis at LSU, I think from 2011 to 2015. So he's an LSU tennis alum. Um, Taylor's a Louisiana native. So right away, you know, he's had people come into the facility that he knows, you know, he seems very comfortable and at home in a sense here. I'm still getting to know him myself I think the whole team is but so far he's really encouraging and positive he hasn't really shown any negative energy at all and I think that's really inspiring and that's what it takes to have a successful team so the rate it's going right now I feel like LSU tennis has a bright future under his leadership. I think um, Taylor has really taken the proper course of action he's you know I mean, in short terms, told her, like, you're off the team, like, you're not, associ- we don't want you associated with LSU tennis in any way, like, we don't stand for this, we don't condone this, and, you know, I think it's hard to make a decision in situations like this, but I definitely agree with him, you know, being a black athlete, I think there's no excuse for saying things like that, especially publicly, it's offensive, and no matter what your meaning behind it was, it's just something you know you don't say. And with Coach Fogman did he ever talk to
0: you, this this article just happened three days ago. This podcast is recorded on September 20th, and the article was released three days prior to this. Did he has he talked to you yet and your team to reassure you that this is unacceptable behavior?
4: Yeah, so we were actually in Virginia playing a tournament the day that this came out, and um, I ended up finding out that our athletic trainer showed him the video once it came out and to make him aware of it. And when he saw it, he you know after the match he sat us all down and he said we have a really important very not really very important issue to speak about and topic, and you know he brought up he's like I'm sure a lot of you have seen what was said and I want to let you know that she's no longer on the team like I've already made the call she's not I told her she's not linked to us at all anymore like we don't stand for this and he basically said to us you know I don't condone this behavior at all and there's no excuses for this type of behavior and I think he for a difficult situation and him just getting here and not knowing us very well he handled it really well he came up to me afterwards separately and was just like are you okay? I want to make sure you're comfortable and you know that I don't stand for this. And I appreciated it because even though I think she didn't directly try to offend anybody, but it's offensive to a lot of people. So I think the way he handled it was admirable. Correct. No doubt. And
0: with that, we talked about your tennis coaches and how you were at a tournament at the time for LSU, but you also have the ability to compete in tournaments outside of LSU, mostly in the summer due to scheduling, what disadvantages do you face when it comes to competing in tournaments outside of the university?
4: Um, yeah, so where I'm actually going to play in a pro tournament next week in Austin, Texas, and then I'm right after flying straight to another collegiate tournament. Um, I would say the obstacles would just be like, you know, when we play outside of, a lot of tennis players across the country do this, but when we play outside of NCAA tournaments, these tournaments usually last a week if you keep winning, so we're missing class for a week at a time it's a rigorous schedule, but it's what we want to do. And it's unfortunate that, you know, there's not as much, like, slack given to us. You know, we still have to complete the same amount of classes as everybody else. Like, we don't get special treatment or get to, you know, some fall sports get to take less classes because they're in season. We don't get that. And we travel, you know, a lot. Um, But I would definitely say the one nice thing about LSU is they're really supportive and helping us, like, be able to have that opportunity to do that. And what do
0: you do to maintain that balance between school and tennis?
4: Oh, geez, I feel like I'm still <laughs> trying to figure it out. Um, I think, you know, for me, it's just a lot of experience. I feel like I've been doing it for a while where I've had to balance it going to online school before before coming to college but it still has its obstacles and I think it just has a lot to do with you know time management is the biggest thing and just having your priorities like you know getting your priorities done so then you can relax and let your brain relax a little bit and still be a normal college student on the weekends or when you have off time. Right and then so you have school you have the regular LSU
0: season tennis season and then you have these tournaments that you can compete in do you have to talk to coaches here possibly coach Fogelman to get Approval, you could say, to compete in these other matches.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, if we want to play a, out of NCAA competition, um, we have to get it has to get approved by our coach. He has to say it's okay for you to go. It's okay for you to miss practice and go. Um, we also have to get approved by compliance to say, yeah, it's okay to leave and miss class. Um, you know, for the first t- three years I was here, I had to go and actually personally talk to my professors and, in a sense, kind of, like, beg them to be like, can you please not, you know, can you please give me an excused absence and not take points off of my grade because I want to go and compete? Um, so those are definitely some of the hurdles we have to go through as tennis players in college, um, but... It's part of the process. I feel like we're starting to get used to it. Yes, and when you do compete, if you win the tournament, you can
0: win prize money. But is it correct that you cannot take the prize money if it is more than your travel expenses? Yeah, so
4: for us, we're not allowed to make any profit off of the tournaments we play. So um, the nice thing is when we travel during the school year to these ADA, um, NCAA competitions, are universities have the opportunity to pay our way so with that being said we're not allowed to take any prize money however in the summer um, which is most in the summer is as a tennis player is usually when you have the time to play a lot of outside of NCAA competitions the school can't pay for expenses so we have to pay for our expenses and the only money we can take is if it exactly equals out the expenses we spent at the tournaments on the dot when which honestly when you're playing you know an out of NCAA tournament. When you add up flights, hotel, food, transportation, and say you lose first round, you're only going home with 150 dollars. Mm-hmm. That's not really gonna cover right. anything. Would you like to see a change in that in the future? Um, I feel like if I were gonna say, I would like to see a change. I would like to see that you know universities have the opportunity to pay for their tennis players to compete in the summer if you're taking classes because a lot of us still take classes in the summer so technically we're still enrolled so I don't really understand why they're not allowed to help support us at the time when we could really play out of college competitions because during the school year they're allowed to pay for it but we don't have as much time to do that because we're also playing collegiate tournaments at the same time so that would be one of the changes I would love to you know see in the future for the next generation of college tennis players.
0: And moving on to speaking about your your schedule this season on the LSU tennis team. You competed in the Wahua Invitation this weekend. What did you think the improvements and what strength did you see in your team?
4: Yeah, I think the tournament that we went to this past weekend, the Invitational, was really eye-opening. It was the first time we have a pretty new team, to say the least, especially with having new coaches. So it was an awesome experience for the coaches, I think, to see how we play and also for us to see how the coaches work with us on, um, on court. But you know I think we had a lot of good results and I think we have a lot of things to build off of and I'm really excited for this season because I feel like we have a lot of depth in our team and that's gonna take us a far, like far away when it comes to the spring so I'm really excited and you have a new coach
0: as we' mentioned you're a senior as we mentioned you're a veteran on this team what can you do to help lead this team?
4: Yeah I feel like a big part of like leading a successful team is the atmosphere that you inspire. And so for me, I just feel like really keeping a positive atmosphere within our locker room and even on court and making sure, like, all the girls around me feel supported and feel encouraged and know that, like, even when it's a hard day and you're tired and you're sore, you have other people around you who feel the same way, but we're still going to lift each other up and inspire each other to push through. It's okay sometimes to be upset and not be there all the way mentally or physically or emotionally on some days, but you still have your teammates to be there and tell you, like, it's okay that you're not okay, but, you know, we're going to keep working, and so... That's what I think adds a lot to building a championship team, and I feel like we have a great group of girls to do that.
0: And what are your expectations as you head into your next, your last season for yourself and for your team?
4: Uh, for me personally, I would love to you know, make All-American status and have a really good run at the NCAA championships in the spring and also to compete in, right now in the fall. My goal right now is to compete in at least three professional events um, to help with my pro ranking. For the team, I feel like this team we have, we can go really far in the NCAA championships as a team, and I'd really like to see that. I'd love to see us make a great run at the SEC tournament, and I think all those things are capable if we stay healthy and keep our heads on, and you know, just go after it and do all the work that it takes to get there.
0: Is there anybody or any team that you're excited to go up against this season?
4: Um. Well, I don't want to like put our heads, <laughs> you know, put us on like the bullseye, but I'm definitely really excited. I think. For us to play the SEC teams, I think it's always a good battle when we play Florida, even like harder battle when we play Mm -hmm. Georgia. And obviously Texas A&M just had a great season last year. They won SECs and one of my good friends transferred there, Carson Brandstein. Um, We had a battle at the number one spot last year. So I'm excited to definitely spar (laughs) up against them again. I hope we come in for them a little bit. For sure. We'll be rooting for you
0: here at the station. And circling back to your dad, Lex Carrington, he told UTSA that Tennis has this social component component that's so beautiful because you can play it forever. With that, where do you see yourself, do you continue to see yourself playing tennis in the future?
4: Absolutely. I think that's the great thing about tennis is like you, we just opened up our tennis facility to the public. You can buy memberships now here at the LSU tennis facility and you're seeing 80 year old men out there whacking the ball around. So I think that's the beautiful thing about tennis is people at all ages can enjoy it. So I definitely see myself like always being involved in tennis. You know, when I go home, I help coach the little kids with my dad. My little cousin's 11. He's out there in Florida on the court six hours a day training. So to just see the next gen build up, that's something that makes me really happy. Is coaching in your future possibly following in the footsteps of your father? I feel like coaching is something that I've always taken a liking to. Um, but for me, in the future, like right now, where I see myself after tennis is, I really want to do something where I can help give other athletes a platform to reach their full potential and feel really supported. I'd love to be like maybe a, maybe that's being a sports agent or a coach or a sports a spokesperson for athletes. But I really want to make sure that I can help the next generation feel like even if you feel like there are barriers in front of you, you have the ability to overcome these barriers, and if you really want to do something, you can do it. And Feel supported and feel like there's somebody who understands what they went through because I think the beautiful thing about being an athlete is it brings community, especially being here at LSU. I think we have a strong community in athletics, and no matter even if you may not get along with somebody in athletics, you still have a common understanding and respect for each other of what you've gone through to get here.
0: And Sophia, you mentioned breaking barriers, circling back to your grandfather, Art Carrington. What hurdles are you still facing today as a black tennis player that could be similar to what your father had to face as a black tennis player 60 years ago?
4: Yeah, I think um, the obviously the hurdles, I can't say they compare anywhere on the same level to what my grandfather had to go through. I mean, I've never had to drink out of a different water fountain because of the color of my skin. But I think the interesting thing about sports and being a black athlete is I remember being at a tournament one time with three of my girlfriends and one of my friends, Delena, she's mixed like me and my friend Alana is not. And my friend Haley's African-American. We're all there standing around each other. And one of the tennis boys came up to us and he was like, why do all the black girls always hang around each other? And we looked around each other and there was like four of us and there was two white girls hanging out with us. And we're like, there's 164 people at this tournament. There's only four of us. How does that say that like we're all just hanging around each other? And so, you know, I think there's this strong, I feel like in a way it's looked at as, you know, we've we've gotten rid of segregation, we've cut down these barriers, there's equal opportunities for black tennis players in tennis right now. And it's like, you know, maybe on paper, it looks like that. But there's, it's still not equal in a sense, because you still feel, you still feel separated in a way, you know, you're playing a sport where the majority of the girls you're playing with don't look like you or don't have the same body types as you or don't have the same upbringing as you and so I think as black athletes in general and especially in tennis I feel like there's always a barrier and a sense of not feeling included in a way but I feel like Serena and Venus really opened up the door to be like you know you can play this sport that's looked at as just a white sport you have the ability to do it and you do belong like so I think that's to spin back to my grandfather's book what's so great about it is like it shows that there is a history of black tennis and You know, I think there's always going to be barriers as just being African-Americans in the society we live in, but I hope for the best it'll change. I think eventually, you know, with time, people are becoming more aware, and that's the first step to it.
0: And with the experiences that you've had, the experiences you've heard from your father and your grandfather, as a D1 tennis player, how do you want to use your platform?
4: You know, I feel like I have a platform in a sense to, like, you know, be— Sorry, now I'm stuck. Um, I feel like I have a platform in a sense as a D1 tennis player to represent something for the next generation. And, you know, when I'm out there competing on court and even when I'm off court, I want, you know, other girls to be like, oh, my gosh, there's somebody that looks like me playing a sport where I don't see a lot of people that look like me. And I want to play that sport because if she can do it, I can do it. And I really want to use my platform to just show not just black athletes, but just athletes in general that you know, you are loved, you're supported, you're gonna have a support system, go out and do it. And I really wanna use my platform to, you know, do tennis camps, help kids in under fun- and underfunded areas and in communities where they would never have the opportunity to be able to afford to buy a tennis racket and some balls and take them out there and show them on the court that, hey, you can play a sport other than basketball or football or baseball. Like, there are other sports out there for you to do. So for me, I just really, you want to use my platform to spread tennis and spread sports and... Help, help people, you know, yes, help people. of course. Sophia, with all the sacrifices you've made to become a tennis
0: player, with all the hard work, the blood, the sweat, the tears you've put into this game for so many years, where would you be without the game of tennis?
4: Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I don't really know where I'd be without the game of tennis because I feel like although it's a sport, it's also a way of life. Like I said before with my family, I remember, you know, normal kids go to daycare when their parents are at work and I was sleeping on the tennis court with my blanket. Um, So I just see it as it opens so many doors for me. I mean, I was able to travel to 16 different countries before the age of 18. And I don't know that many people who know that I wasn't even a tourist. So I hope I can go back one day and, you know, get to it. but tennis has just opened up so many opportunities and taught me so many life lessons that I would never be able to take back or change
0: that's amazing we love to hear that Sophia thank you so much for joining us we're wishing you you an amazing tennis season as it is your last year year last year here at LSU we're wishing you all the best this has been the Hodges Huddle podcast Patricia Caputo with LSU tennis player Sophia Carrington